Second Corinthians. As we are coming near to the end of this book, we'll be camping out on a particular passage here because it is very relevant, very relevant to our lives and the lives of many that we love and see. Second Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading from verses 5 through 7, but focusing on verse 5 this morning as Paul has turned in his defense of his apostleship and the authority that he has. He encourages them, exhorts them to test their salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 through 7. The text reads, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Verse 8, we can do nothing against the truth but only for the truth. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O Father, your Spirit would move among us. We pray, God, that it would both approve as well as convict, expose as well as confirm, that which is the condition of our own heart, whether or not, O Father, we know you. Open the eyes of our heart. Fill us with your Spirit that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. I was standing in line at the hardware store, and the man in front of me had just purchased a tool the Harbor Freight Tools, and like a good cashier in many stores, the cashier offered the man uh, an extended warranty in case the tool broke, in case the tool exploded, in case the tool failed, whether it's an electronic purchase, whether it's a store that buys and sells tires, whatever it is, oftentimes stores have these extended warranty policies. And if it does break, then you can have it replaced for free. Well, technically not for free. It's the price minus whatever you had already paid for the warranty. And whether it's a home, car, or electronic item, part of the appeal of this extended warranty or of this insurance policy is it preys on your fear, your insecurity. A part of the appeal is that it gives you some 
semblance of a peace of mind that it will be okay. You take out a mortgage on your home or you refinance. Then you're going to get all of these letters that say, here, you know what? You can buy some extra insurance so that if you die, then your spouse won't have to sell the home in order to pay off your mortgage. And the insurance industry is a big industry. You can buy insurance for your car, for your home, for your life, for your dog, just about anything you can pay a premium and buy insurance for. That'll give you a modicum of peace. Whatever it might be that concerns you, you can likely find a policy that will cover it if you pay enough. That policy is only good enough, though, if it's backed by the insurance company. Of course, if it's a scam and you go to make a claim and they don't pay out, you know that you've been taken. But people like having that sense of security, don't they? We all like to have some sense of security. It's hard, though, for many people, especially those who don't know God, to live with a sense of security. To live day by day or week to week or month to month. Because that security gives them a peace of mind, a peace of heart. They can sleep soundly at night if you have that security. And especially, unfortunately, I should say, when it comes to one's security as to what will happen when they die. Well, many people around the world, they live in tremendous fear, tremendous insecurity. And that drives them. People who belong to cults, people who belong to many world religions, they live in a sense of insecurity. That's why they are always trying to do something to make themselves more acceptable to God, to make themselves a better person. And their hope is, if you were to ask them, will you go to heaven after you die? Their answer often is, well, I hope so, or I'd like to think so. And yet it is not a confident answer. Mass majority of the world, there's great insecurity. Many of the world religions, some of the major ones, you really don't know. You really don't know what's going to happen to your soul after you die. So many live in a sort of a insecurity in their life. And that fear drives them. And then there are others on the other end of the spectrum. They live in a sense of a false security. A false security because they've been told, they've been told somehow and they've been duped into this thinking that, well, don't worry. Everybody will be okay. After you die, everybody goes to a better place. After you die, there's nothing bad that will happen to you. There's no such thing as heaven or hell. Everybody just goes to heaven or everybody will be fine or they think to themselves, I'm good, I'm, I'm not a murderer, I've never done anything seriously wrong, I'm fine, you're fine, no worries, everybody will be just fine and they live in a false sense of security, which is common today as well. We often see people who have made some sort of profession of faith in the past And this subject that Paul challenges his readers in, the subject of examining one's faith is so relevant because we often think of those who have made a profession in the past and yet not living as a Christian ought to today. And we wonder, are they saved? Are they a believer? 
Maybe they were baptized. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they're involved in the church. Maybe they're still, and sometimes you wonder. Maybe you wonder about yourself. Am I truly saved? And what would you answer to that question if somebody were to ask you that today? If you were to die tonight, if you were to go out on to the freeway right after this service and be hit by a semi-truck, would you be in heaven? Are you absolutely sure? Are you confident? Do you have that assurance of salvation? When you were to, if you were to test or examine, as the passage here in verse 5 tells us, do you know where your soul will go? Do you know what the eternal future holds for you? Just as the world would say, you know what, you better look at your insurance policy every so often, or you should review your investments, or maybe you should review your will. The scriptures, time and time again, will cause us and challenge us to examine our own eternal destiny, the state of our soul. Because on the one hand, it can give assurance of salvation to those who are saved. It gives confidence. It gives a sense of security. On the other hand, for those that aren't, it causes them to realize that they may not be saved at all. If somebody's a Christian, then the message today will bolster your confidence that, yes, I'm a child of God and I know my eternal destiny. But if somebody is not, then it confirms to them what they need to do to become one. You see, it's one thing, it's one thing for someone to know that they're not a Christian because they know the true state of their own soul. But it's another, which is a worse place to be in. To not know, to be ignorant or to be self-deceived into thinking that one is a true believer and yet deny it. If I were to have a sickness, if I were to have cancer and I were to say, well, you know what, I feel fine. I am fine. I don't feel sick. In fact, I feel as strong as ever while inside my organs are being eaten away and to live in self-denial, that is a terrible state to be in. But if I know the state of my own soul, the state of my own health, then I can make a decision then I can make a decision as to what I'm going to do. And here in this text today, Paul elicits a cause of the Corinthian church for self-examination, for introspection, not just for their own good, but you see, to validate the message of salvation. And the reason why we read the entire context was, you see, he wanted them to examine themselves He wanted them to examine themselves. Why? So that they could see for themselves, Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, you know the message that I brought to you was a valid and truthful message. Look at what Christ has done. He has borne fruit in your life. And it validates the apostolic ministry, the truthfulness of the message that I bore to you. And he presents it so that they might have confidence and assurance of our salvation and assurance that his message was true. That is the point that he brings here when he calls them to test themselves, to examine themselves, 
It is to confirm that they are believers. But if they're not, it was to bring them a warning. But primarily he believes that it would bring them to a place of assurance to validate his apostleship again in his defense as he is being undermined by these false teachers who would come in. So before we approach the question of how a person knows if they're saved, it's important to know, number one, God wants you to have assurance of salvation. God wants you to have assurance of salvation. We look into the book of 1 John as the Apostle John writes in chapter 5, verse 13. He says in the back of this epistle, at the very end, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these things, meaning all the things that he had written in the book, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. God desires that you know you have eternal life. Now, John, in his epistle in 1 John, challenges them a number of times with a number of very piercing questions. Some very tough and challenging things later that we're going to look at this week and Lord willing next week that helps us to discern that we might have confidence and assurance of salvation. You see, God does not want you to walk around with a sense of insecurity, wondering, am I saved or am I not? I remember when I was a little boy, and I first received the Lord Jesus as my Savior after hearing the gospel of Christ, that He had died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the third day. And I remember praying to God as, as about 11 or 12 years old, And I'll tell you what, the next time I sinned, I prayed to receive Christ again. And then the next time I sinned, I would pray to receive Christ again. And I did that so many times, figure out what amount of muscle I've taken. So I thought to myself, that's what I need to do. God doesn't want you to go around wondering, though, am I truly a Christian? Am I really a person who is a child of God? Will I make it to heaven? I've sinned. I've failed again. God doesn't want you to have this type of insecurity he wants you to know that's why John wrote what he wrote in the book of 1st John now this is different than two major groups today there are two major groups today two major systems of belief that don't hold to this idea that God wants you to have assurance of salvation one would be the teachings of the Catholic Church in the Council of Trent The Catholic Church back in 1546 declared it anathema or a curse to say, quote, that a man who is born again and justified is bound of faith to believe that he is certainly in the number of the predestined. Ken 15 on justification. In other words, you're cursed if you think that you are eternally among those who are going to have salvation in Christ. G.C. Burkauer in The Conflict with Rome explains that it's consistent with what they believe because they believe that, you know, your salvation is gained when you work alongside of infused righteousness by Christ to work out your salvation and to earn grace upon grace and then you will receive final justification. 
It's consistent because you really never know. So you ask your average Catholic, do you know for sure if you're going to heaven? Common answer would be, I sure hope so. But many think, well, I'm going to go to purgatory and burn off the sins that I have not been able to make up for by means of grace that I've received. So Catholics, which is perhaps one of the largest, if not the largest, world religion today, have no assurance of salvation. But another view that undermines the idea of assurance of salvation is those who would hold to Arminianism. Arminianism is named after a Dutch theologian, and they believe basically you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation, and you need to be sure to keep it. There is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that you're saved and will always be saved. Methodists and Nazarenes, denominations, as well as many assemblies of God, they tend to be Arminian in their beliefs. But they would have a theology that believes you can lose your salvation. Both Catholics and Arminians do not believe you can have certainty of your salvation for all of the rest of your life. But as 1 John 5.13, it says God wants you to know, to know. He wants you to have that confidence that you are a believer. After all, Philippians 1.6, a very common passage says what? For I'm confident of this, that Paul writes to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He writes a letter to the Philippians and tells them, God will work in your life and He will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. So someday, God will continue and complete that good work He's begun in you. That certainly couldn't be true from an Arminian view where you might lose your salvation, where you don't know. Maybe you might do something so bad in Arminian's view that you've lost it. And then what? You have to gain it again and then you might lose it again or whatever it might be. I mean, we sing a song based upon that First, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's very true. Our salvation is secure. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice in John 10. And I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Your life, your salvation, once you are a child of God, is secure in the hand of Christ, in the hand of God who is greater than all. No one, not Satan, not the world, nor anyone can ever take the salvation of a true believer away person who is a true child of God cannot lose their salvation. But secondly, we are to examine our salvation. We are to examine our salvation. As it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we've just read, test yourselves, examine yourselves. You see, when I was a young Christian, I was told by a youth leader, don't ever doubt your salvation, question it, because Satan wants you to question your salvation and doubt. Well, part of that is true, depending on what your doubt is based on. 
If you're doubting that God could save a sinner like you, or if you're doubting that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was enough, or if you're doubting that the Word of God is true, then of course it can be sinful. But there is a legitimate place that the Scriptures call us to look at our own heart, to look at our own salvation and say, am I truly saved? That's what the Bible tells us to do today. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Be all the more diligent to make sure of your salvation. You can't do that without asking yourself the really tough questions. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, writes, The question, quote, am I saved, is one of the most important I can ever ask myself. I need to know the answer. I must know the answer. This is not a trifle. Without the assurance of salvation, the Christian life is unstable Vulnerable to the debilitating rigors of mood changes. Basing assurance on changing emotions allows the wolf of heresy to camp on the doorstep. Progress in sanctification, meaning Christian growth, requires a firm foundation in faith. Assurance is the cement of that foundation. Without it, the foundation crumbles. And so it says here in the text, we're to test ourselves, we're to examine ourselves, we're to look at our own lives and say and ask the important question, am I truly saved? Am I truly a child of God? God wants you to know that you're saved and we are to examine ourselves. So then we come to the question of how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved? Well, as you can see in your outline, there's a number of illegitimate evidences, illegitimate evidences, or I should say, unconclusive evidences of saving faith. Solely based upon themselves, they don't prove that anybody is a Christian. The first would be intellectual belief, intellectual belief. John 8.31, if you turn your Bibles with me, we'll look at a number of passages, say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. John chapter 8, verse 31. There are those who have an intellectual belief that does not save. John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus was speaking to a number of the Jews and he says in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, they had believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. There's a belief. There is a belief that does not save a person's soul. You can believe like these Jews did. They believed they were a part of God's family. Do you know what they said later on? They said in verse 39, Look, we're children of Abraham. Meaning that, you know what, we're born of Abraham, so we're saved. We're, we're part of God's family. We're born into it. Later on in verse 48, they called Jesus. It gets worse. They called Jesus, you Samaritan, and you're demon-possessed. These are people who, quote-unquote, believed. 
And then what? In verse 59, they sought to stone him. It's obvious that their belief here, even as Jesus addresses them, was superficial. It was a belief that didn't save. Let's turn to James chapter 2, verse 19. James chapter 2, verse 19. It says, as James writes about an intellectual outward belief in God, you believe that God is one. That was an all-important truth to the Jew. That God is one God. You do well. That's not a bad thing to believe. The demons also believe and shudder. There's a belief. You can believe in the Trinity and not be saved. The bottom line is that there is a belief, a type of belief, an intellectual acceptance of the facts that do not save. You know, you take a survey across America. Lots of surveys are given about what people believe. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in this. It's an intellectual belief. It doesn't save. Mere belief in facts does not save. Inconclusive. Secondly, an outward excitement. Luke 8, 11 to 15. You remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? Sower and the seeds. Sower goes around sowing seeds. And there's four types of soils, remember? One is just taken away. It's a hard ground. never goes anywhere. Nothing grows there. Then there's a thorny soil. It represents those who merely heard, but the so distracted that they never bore fruit. Then there are those who are thrown among the rocky soil. You know, the rocky soil. And the rocky soil is that soil which is uh, uh, not real deep because there's a layer of stone underneath. And, you know, the, the sun heats up that stone underneath the soil. It's not like these boulder type things. It heats up the stone. And so the seed that is thrown on that soil and watered, it receives not only heat during the day, the sunlight during the day, but in the very cold coolness of the night, that, that, that rocky soil releases its heat and it generates a, a condition in which these plants grow. And they shoot up. They shoot up nice and tall. But then the scorching sun comes out. Scorching sun comes out and dries them all up and there's no fruit that's born. All three types of those soils, whether it be the one on the hard road, whether it be one in the thorns that are choked out, whether it be the ones on the, on the rocky soil that shoot up, none of them bear fruit. Only the last, the good soil does. And we see the third one there that shoots up. It can be so excited for the things of God and yet not be saved, not bear any fruit. Inconclusive. Thirdly, being a member of a church or being baptized doesn't save you. Being a member of a church or being baptized doesn't save you. Somebody might be a member of a church for many years. For however many years. Decades upon decades. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? The wheat and the tares that are in the field. And a tear looks like the wheat until it's fully mature and then it shows itself. Phony wheat. And in any body, any local church, there are those who are a part of that local church that may not be genuinely saved. They may look identical to Christians. They may say all of the lingo that Christians use. They may act like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, they're not. Inconclusive. 
Fourthly, there's sometimes even the conviction of sin. The feeling of remorse when something that has been done is wrong that doesn't save. doesn't show the genuineness of a person's salvation. Remember what happened to Judas who betrayed Jesus? He later on felt so terrible about it. He took the pieces of silver and he returned them and he went out and hung himself. Fifthly, mere profession and good works don't necessarily save. Mere profession doesn't save. Turn your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. A very important passage as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus here says... Matthew 7, verse 21. About the true way into the kingdom. After he speaks of two ways of life, the narrow gate and the broad gate, and he talks about true teaching and false teaching. And in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many. He doesn't say just a few. He says many will say, Lord, Lord. They called him Lord, Lord. And they did things in his name. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They performed many miracles. I don't know what else might be related today. They built many hospitals or they did many good works. They fed so many of the poor. They gave of themselves or whatever it might have been. They called mere profession and even good works aren't conclusive of one's salvation. Many, he will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many things like that. Even repeating a prayer, saying a prayer as if it's a formula. Many of you have taught in children's Sunday school or vacation Bible school. You say, well, you share the gospel and you say, well, how many of you would like to receive Christ? And the whole class raises their hand and you say, praise God. And you're so happy and you share with the other teachers. And then the next month comes around and then the next teacher comes in and shares the gospel not knowing what you've done. And so how many would you like to receive Christ? And they all raise their hand again. Why? Because sometimes they do it because everyone else is. Many times, one might not understand what it means to be a Christian. Salvation doesn't come because of some incantation or reciting some chant or reciting some prayer. Much as you know that a child who does something wrong says, I'm sorry. Simply saying the words doesn't mean that they necessarily truly are in their heart. That's not to say, that's not to say that these things may not be true. Some of these things, such as good works or praying to God or whatnot, are not a part of a true child of God. But in and of themselves, in and of themselves, They're not conclusive of a person's salvation. Merely saying, I'm a Christian, or I believe. 
When I was in Texas, I lived in Dallas, which is known as the buckle of the Bible Belt. Some 2,000 plus churches there that are in the area. Culturally, it's Christian. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. And more likely than lots of people go to church. Lots of people go to church. Yet not all of them are saved. Some think they're Christians because they've grown up in the church. That's not uncommon. Some people think that they're saved because they've attended church for decades. That's not uncommon. They've attended or they served or they're very active or whatever it may be. And many times we may assume, we may assume that a child is a Christian because they've gone to church all their life. Or we may assume that a parent is a Christian because they've gone to church all their life. We may assume that we are because we've always served, we've always been asked to church, we've been very faithful or whatever it may be. Only years later to wonder, why is it? Why is it that they're no longer walking with God? There's no desire. Don't assume Don't assume about ourselves, about others. Because the greatest thing that we can give to others is the message of salvation. It's to lead somebody else to Christ, to see that changed life, and that they might have assurance of salvation. And that's Paul's point here. Test yourselves so that why? They can recognize within themselves, you know what, I am a believer, I am a Christian, and I can see that and the message is genuine and true because I can see that within my own heart. And that leads us to say, what are the evidences of saving faith? How can I know if I am a Christian? How can I know that I'm truly saved? For that, we look back the epistle of 1 John. As 1 John has said, 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what did he write to them? And we're only going to cover two of these things today. With the next week, we'll cover a number of others. But number one, an evidence of saving faith. 1 John 5.1 If you turn in your Bibles there, I want you to see the text because it's very poignant to what we will be discussing. The evidences of saving faith, one important one that he points out here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes, it says, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father, loves the child born of Him. True saving belief manifests itself in a love for God and a love for Jesus Christ. A love for God and a love for Jesus Christ. One of the evidences of saving faith is that of the affections of the heart. The affections of the heart. When God transforms a person, He transforms them completely. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? When God changes a person, He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There's a change in desires. There's a change in perspective. There's a change in the affection of the heart. No longer is there animosity. No longer is there indifference. No longer is there rebellion. No longer is there ambivalence. There is a love for God and a love for His Son, Jesus Christ. This was an issue that was addressed 
1746, about six years before the greatest revival in American history called the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise. He wrote a treatise called The Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. And Jonathan Edwards was arguably perhaps the greatest theologian of American history. Jonathan Edwards was also used as a primary instrument to flame, you know, to light the flames of this revival. And he wrote the treatise called The Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections to address the issue of evidences of true conversion. Because people would want salvation, people would profess faith in Christ, but not want anything else. And in the year that that treatise was published, the, the popular teaching of that day, the popular teaching of that day was the only real evidence that you could possibly have was the subjective feeling based upon some emotional experience at the time of conversion without any other evidence after, uh, thereafter. In other words, uh, a person would feel, yes, I'm saved and have that feeling in euphoria and then no other evidence was shown or manifest. And he wrote his treatise to address that problem because that's what the popular teaching of that day was. And it was interesting because when the Great Awakening happened, a number of years later, there were great numbers of people in America who would come, come to, to these revivals and profess faith in Christ. And it was not uncommon either for there to be very ecstatic and emotional experiences that would happen, heightened euphoria, and droves of people would make professions of faith in Christ. Many people would do so. And yet, soon after, little or no change in their lives. And critics of the Great Awakening would pounce on this and say, You see, this Great Awakening wasn't so great after all. All it was is some sort of emotional trip. An emotional roller coaster that people would go on. And in that vein, Jonathan Edwards wrote about what he called holy affections holy affections to defend to defend true conversions and to expose false conversions the simple evidence he would say is the evidence of a person's salvation is their affection for holy things a longing after God and a longing for personal holiness so you ask yourself the question am I truly saved? And John in 1 John chapter 5 challenges us and says what? Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love Christ? Do you love Jesus? Do you miss your time with the Lord? Do you miss the worship of God when you're away? Do you enjoy worshiping God? Does your heart long to sit in the presence of God and to love God? Not perfectly, but does your heart love the things of God? Does your heart long to be with God, dwelling daily in His presence? As it says in the Psalms, feasting at His table. Does your heart desire heaven? To be with God. Does it wish that it could walk with Christ in the garden of paradise 
Does your heart love God? Or is it cold? Is it indifferent? If you're honest with yourself, what would you say for your own heart? If you're to test yourself, examine yourself, does your heart love God? When you look at the orientation of your heart, the inclination of your heart, the desires of your heart, what do you see? What do you see? Number two, second evidence, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 to 17. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? How do we know that? John writes very plainly, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in what? In death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? The second evidence is not only that, they, that a person loves God and loves Christ. But the person loves other believers. The person loves other Christians. There is a genuine love for other believers. And John says it very plainly there. We know we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. We love other believers. The person who claims and says, you know what, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But doesn't love God's church. Doesn't love the people of God. They'd rather not be around other Christians. Well, there's a problem there. Problem is, maybe they don't know God. In the book Saved Without a Doubt, the author writes, Do you honestly care about other believers? Or are you cold, uncaring, and indifferent? Do you have a desire to reach out and meet their needs? Those who don't care are spiritually dead. Characterized by an ongoing hatred. In our sophisticated age, that is manifested not so much in a vitriolic hostility as in an utterly self-centered approach to life. People who continually focus on themselves and couldn't care less what happens to anyone else are of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. As believers, however, we know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, a true brother or sister in Christ will genuinely care about their own family. And their own family is a family of believers. Their spiritual family is a family of believers. Just like we love our own family, our own Flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, and our own parents. We love our Christian brothers and sisters if we're truly saved. You're not always going to have to be perfect, but you will have a heart that sees your fellow brother or sister in Christ as part of your family. It doesn't say to its own heart, well, you know what? They should associate with those people. They should be 
like they are. They're not like me, so I, I, I don't really care. They're not my age or my race or my socioeconomic setting or my, my profession. They don't have the same interests as me and I just don't I, don't... I don't feel anything for them. I won't reach out to them and I don't care. Go over there. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Oh, you're a Samaritan? There are a bunch of Samaritans over there. Go say hi to them. You know, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew. Well, maybe the Gentiles ought to have their own little Gentile church. Or you're a child. Well, don't tell the children to come to me. I'm an adult. Have the children play among you. Jesus would never be like that. Desires that all people would come to Him and sees people in their spiritual state as part of the family of God or not to see through what? The worldly biases, the superficial biases and the facade that people have put up because they love people who are part of the family of God. And believers who are true Christians, believers I should say, are true believers when they see people as God sees them. To care about others who are part of the family of God. I remember even as a young Christian, when I was a teenager in high school, I, I would spend a tremendous amount of time with my friends, with my friends who were in high school. We'd be on the same sports teams, or we'd be in the same clubs, or we'd you know, take classes together, help each other with our homework. But you know what? There was a marked difference. There was a marked difference between how... I felt about them and how I felt about my friends who were saved, who knew God, who I only saw once a week. I spent tremendous amount of times with my non-Christian friends, but the closeness in my heart was among my brothers and sisters who I saw just for a few hours every week. Why? Because I knew in eternity they would be with me they are my family. And there is an affinity when you meet somebody else who's a Christian. I was just at Oral Wheat Bakery down in Bell Red there. And you know what? I met a lady and she was telling me, I'm glad we don't have to work on Sunday. I said, really? And that's my inroad. Oh, why are you glad that you don't have to work on Sunday? I found out she went to church. She worked at work. And you know what? She was automatically so much more close because she, I hardly knew her. I just see her. I buy bread from her. It's a dollar. A, you know, it's really cheap. <laughs> And she was a believer. She went to this Bible teaching church, small little church. I never heard of it before. Over in Bellevue. Special when you meet somebody who is a part of your family, the family of God. And that's the question you ask yourself. Do I truly care? Do I care about other believers? Do I love the people of God? Do I love God's church? Or do I see church as something I have to go to? Something I'm obligated to go to. Something I'd rather not be around. You know what? God has placed within the heart of a believer the fact that there is a family, a spiritual family that we care about. There are a number of evidences for what we look at when we ask ourselves, am I a true Christian? Am I a true believer? Am I saved? God wants us to have that assurance of salvation. And it begins with a love for God, a genuine love for God, and a genuine love for Christ, and a genuine love for brothers and sisters who are part of God's family. Because we want to be able to say, like we sing that song, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. 
born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Right? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Is that what you'd want? You'd want to be able to sit and be in the house of God all the days of my life that I may dwell in its presence forever. Is that how you feel? Is that how it is for your own heart when you look at your own heart? Because a person who isn't has no desire for that. A person who isn't has no desire because maybe they intellectually believe. Maybe they've been serving for a long time. Maybe they've never given their life to Christ. Maybe they've been baptized. I don't know what everyone's heart and life is like here. But if it isn't, let me encourage you to consider what it means to be a believer, a true believer, a person who has come to a saving knowledge of God. Because the gospel is that you and I are sinners. And you and I are steeped in our sin and we are blind in our heart. We're rebellious towards God with a fist that is raised to heaven. Who dares to say to God, I want my way and because of my pride, I will live my way. We are blinded. That is who we all were until Christ came to earth, the Son of God, and died on the cross for our sins, for your sins and for mine. Because the Bible says what? That we are all sinners and all have fallen short of God's glory. But as many, as many as received Him, to them gave the right to be called children of God. Because Christ died on the cross for your sins and for mine so that we would not have to spiritually die to be separated from God for all of eternity. Because we are destined to hell if we don't receive Christ. That is our eternal destiny. But Christ died on the cross and was raised on the third day so that we might have life and live. And if anyone comes to the cross, comes to Christ and begs of God to forgive them from sin and repents of their sin. To say, you know what, I'm living my own life and I want to live your way, God. God will in His grace grant to them upon the asking that He will grant to them eternal life will turn their life and give them a new heart, a new life, create with them a clean heart, that they might have eternal life and be forgiven of their sin. And God is gracious to forgive, for He will reject no one that comes to Him who gives their life to Him. It's not an intellectual thing which says, you know what, I believe, and I've raised my hand, I've come to the campfire and thrown my little pine cone in. No, it is saying to God, I am a sinner and I can do nothing to save my own soul. And I want you to save me. If you're not sure that that is what you have ever done to ask of God, don't let doubt reign in your life. Because God wants you to know that you're saved. God wants you to know that you are a believer if you've given your life to Christ in that way. To receive Him as Lord and Savior. And He promises to you the gift of eternal life. Because only God 
through Christ can save your soul. And he invites you to do so today. And I want to encourage you to consider doing that today. Because tomorrow you have no idea whether or not it will come for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have seen in your word, it says so very clearly, to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine your own heart. And so, Father, I pray, you know the condition of each and every person's heart here today. You know whether or not they are truly your child. And I pray, O Father, for them that do not know you. God, as we pause just for a minute, I pray, God, that you would save souls this morning. If you've never received Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never turned your life over to Him, if you've never confessed your sin, turned in repentance to Christ, let me encourage you to do so today, now. To beg of God to save you, to give you eternal life. Just ask of God Ask Him to give you that free gift. Father, You know, O God, the condition of our souls. We pray, O God, that we might not be self-deceived, but, God, that we might test ourselves. That the affection of our heart would confirm our salvation that we might be assured a love for you, a love for your son, a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, your church. And may you, O God, be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.